Inside ADHD is ADHD Family's official podcast that provides parents with current research about ADHD and strategies for helping their children. ADHDfamilies.ca is a resource website for parents of children who have ADHD. All of the resources have been evaluated by experts in the field of ADHD, so parents can feel confident that they are receiving trustworthy information. For more information, visit ADHDfamilies.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific ADHD topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to ADHDfamilies at canlearnsociety.ca. Hi everybody, my name is Krista Forand. I'm a registered psychologist at the CanLearn Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And this is Inside ADHD, the official podcast for ADHDfamilies.ca. Welcome, and I'm really excited because this is the first of five podcasts that we will be releasing throughout the month of October, because October is ADHD Awareness Month. Um, and so throughout uh, the month, on uh, each Monday, we'll be releasing a podcast that tackles an ADHD myth. So before we get to today's myth and uh, talk a little bit more about that, I also wanted to share some information from a listener who wrote in. Um, we had sort of sent out some questions for people to respond to, to talk about how they advocate for themselves, how they bring awareness to ADHD. So this feedback came from an adult who has ADHD and she mentioned a few things about how she advocates for herself in the workplace as well as how she tackled the myth um, that she viewed herself as lazy. So the first part is she talks about how she was able to advocate with her employer um, by asking her employer for specific instructions or more explicit expectations about um, a project that she had to do by asking for an example. And this is actually really um, a good example because I often say to students who I work with who have attention and learning difficulties, um, always ask your teacher for an example of the finished product. So whether that's um, some kind of science project or an essay, then the student has better idea of what's expected of them. It also gives them something to follow as a model for um, what they should be doing to complete it successfully. So that's also something that um, adults can do in the workforce by asking their employers or their coworkers um, for a model or for an example of the document or the project that needs to be completed. Um, she also mentioned a myth that she had tackled, that she had uh, previously viewed herself as lazy, but she started to realize that it wasn't that, it was just that her brain works differently, and she needs to understand how this may affect her daily life in getting things done and being successful. 
So she accepted that she has difficulty with estimating time and with time management in particular. And so she just started using a strategy where she creates a master list of all the things that she needs to do. And every day she would take the two most urgent things uh, on that list and put them in her calendar for the upcoming day. And these two um, uh, to-do items were called must-dos because they were the most urgent and they had the highest priority. If she happened to have more time that day after completing the two must-dos, then she would also go take another task off of the um, kind of master list and put it on for the day and try to get that one done. Now those ones would be called maybe-dos and that just helped her to sort of decrease the pressure and the guilt of perhaps not necessarily getting to that task that day, but it was alright because she had a system for separating what was urgent and a must-do versus something that she could do on another day. So again, that really helped her to accomplish those tasks without feeling overwhelmed or guilty and accepting the fact that some things may take longer for her because of her ADHD. So that's just some really good feedback that we received and if you'd like to give us feedback about how you advocate for yourself or for your child or any myths for you that were sort of busted or that you tackled, um, please fill out our survey on the homepage of our website ADHDfamilies.ca or you can also just send us an email with your story to ADHDfamilies at canlearnsociety.ca. The other thing I did want to remind people is that advocating doesn't necessarily mean disclosing your diagnosis. So in this case, um, she was able to speak with her employer about uh, the expectations for a particular work assignment and asking for an example, but uh, there was no disclosure of the actual ADHD diagnosis necessary in order to actually advocate. So that's something to really keep in mind. So we're not necessarily saying that you need to disclose um, your diagnosis or your child's diagnosis. There's lots of great ways you can advocate with keeping that private. So on to today's myth and the first myth of five that we will be talking about over the month of October. Today's myth is ADHD is just an excuse for poor parenting or bad behavior. And many parents will be able to identify with this myth as uh, a lot of people tend to share their opinions with them um, about their parenting and it can be um, quite stressful, embarrassing, and might cause guilt. So that's something we really want to take seriously and talk about. I think this is a harmful myth because it can lead families to not seeking help because they may feel worried about being judged as bad parents. Um, and sort of highlighting some of the difficulties that they might have with their children. Um, another thing to consider is that children may not actually receive help early on in their life because parents may view their child's behavior as a problem with laziness or motivation, which is something that we're going to talk a lot about this month and I already brought up with uh, our listener feedback. Once we understand that ADHD is a very real disorder, that it has a strong neurological and genetic basis, we can accept that um, it is, we can accept it as it is in reality and seek appropriate treatment for it. And this understanding can decrease the amount of time 
that the individual spends living their life and experiencing frequent failures because of their ADHD symptoms, which then contribute to things like low self-esteem and sometimes secondary problems uh, such as things like anxiety, depression, or addictions. So it's really important to take it seriously. People who uh, say that it doesn't exist, they're not realizing the seriousness of this statement that ADHD doesn't exist. Because if we continue to believe that it doesn't exist, or that it's not a serious disorder, people will continue to struggle and not receive proper treatment. Uh, my colleagues and I work with children and adults every day who experience very real impairments because of their ADHD. And it's an absolute disservice to these people and their families to say that what they are experiencing is not a real disorder or that is simply the result of bad parenting. I want to talk a bit about research evidence that supports the neurologi neurological basis of ADHD because if we can understand that then we know that it's not environmentally caused particularly in what we're talking about poor parenting that there is a brain-based reason for the symptoms that we see in individuals who have ADHD. So in the brain studies that we look at they talk a lot about gray matter and white matter now, gray matter is basically the cell bodies of the neurons in the brain, and the white matter is the cell axon, which is attached to the cell bodies that transfer signals throughout the brain. You can think of the axon, or the white matter, you can think of it as a wire or a cord that transfers information to the next cell. When you put the two together, you have a neuron. You have the cell body and the axon, the cord. And it's a cell that communicates with other cells or other neurons using both chemicals and electricity in the brain. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about gray matter and white matter. Some of the major brain areas that are mentioned in the research include things like the prefrontal cortex, the basal ganglia, the cerebellum, the amygdala and the thalamus. Now I'm going to describe a few of the, um, what those brain areas do. Before I do that, I'd like to mention if you're a visual person, or if you feel like it would be uh, easier to have visuals, go online and look for um, a picture of a brain that might have some labels to these different areas. Um, one really great app that I could recommend that you could get on your phone or your tablet is called the 3D Brain app. You can look up all these structures and they'll, sh they'll show you exactly where they are in the brain and what they look like and they'll give you a brief description of what those structures do. So if you want to look up that app, you can do that. So start with the prefrontal cortex. That one's probably the most um, well talked about or well known as far as ADHD concerns. And if you remember from our Executive Functions podcast episode, um, the prefrontal cortex is right in front uh, right behind your forehead and it is important for planning, reasoning, judgment, also in inhibition which means stopping yourself from doing something. Um, it helps to control emotions and behavior based on what is considered socially appropriate in a given situation and therefore it helps us to achieve our goals whether those goals are short-term like being able to just be successful in a social interaction with someone else, or long-term, such as um, being able to 
study over time for a test to get a good grade. The other area that's associated with ADHD is called the basal ganglia and it has a bunch of little parts inside of it and it's more in the middle part of your brain and it controls things like voluntary movements, your balance, your posture, learning different procedures, so things like learning how to ride a bike for example, habits, as well as rewards and reinforcement, which is something we'll be talking about in future podcasts, thinking and emotions. Part of the basal ganglia, uh, some parts of the basal ganglia have been associated with movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease. Another area is the cerebellum. So it's that little, um, it looks almost like it's, its own brain, like a tiny brain, on the very bottom of your brain. And it regulates motor movements that are automatic, and particularly with things like timing of movement. It's also recently been found to be associated with learning and attention. The amygdala, some people might know about this as well, it processes emotions, and it's particularly related to learning, especially when we experience intense emotions like fear. So it also communicates with the prefrontal cortex, so the executive function area, and other brain areas when processing emotions. And this is where we get our fight or flight response from. So the amygdala helps us decide if we need to get away from the situation or if we need to deal with it, but it's an emotion response. The thalamus is also another part of the brain. It relays information between the cortex, so that outside part that everyone kind of sees when you look at a picture of the brain, and the brain stem, which is at the back and the bottom. And it's related to senses and motor movements. It's also important for things like attention, timing movement, alertness, and awareness. So you can see how these brain areas could be involved in ADHD and, and the symptoms that you see in, in the disorder because um, they're related to things like attention, executive functions, motor movements, controlling emotions, and behavior reactions. Um, research also talks about structural differences and functional differences in these brain areas that I've just discussed. So the difference here is structural differences mean actual differences in the physical appearance of that brain area and it's usually the size or the amount of the gray or the white matter. Whereas functional differences mean differences in the amount or type of activity in that area. Usually more or less activity less connectivity or communication with other areas that, that that part of the brain should be communicating with. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about structural and functional. So the evidence in the research shows when we're talking about structural differences, there's a reduction in the size of the structures of the basal ganglia, so that motor center. There's also a reduction in the amygdala and the thalamus, so that emotional processing center, and then the thalamus is that sensory and motor relay station. There's also reduction in the prefrontal cortex, so this is in the size, it's smaller, and that's that executive function area. 
interesting to note, untreated ADHD, there's, in untreated ADHD individuals, there's thinner cortex in the prefrontal areas compared to treated ADHD. And there's a reduction of the white matter, so those axons of the neurons, or the cords that communicate the signals, there's a reduction of white matter volume in all areas of the cortex in non-medicated children versus medicated children for ADHD. Remember, so remember again that the white matter is that axon or that wire that transfers signals to other nearby neurons. So less white matter means less uh, efficient communication. Now when we look at functional differences, these studies typically look at tasks that involve attention, so being able to sustain your attention during a task, or inhibition, being able to stop yourself from doing something, but also being able to uh, take an action when the situation asks for it. So the research in the functional area shows what they call hypoactivity in the prefrontal cortex, basal ganglia, and thalamus. Hypoactivity is the opposite of hyperactivity, so hypoactivity means less activity, or slow down. So they found that in the prefrontal cortex, basal ganglia, and thalamus. There's also what's called the frontal cerebral network, and this is the connection between the prefrontal cortex and that cerebellum, that little brain that sits on the bottom of your brain. It looks like a little brain. <laughs> This connection helps us to decide what to do in certain situations and to then initiate it or to do it. So it's very important. This connection is also important in estimating time and making time predictions. So you can see how this is, could be a problem if it was not functioning the way it should be. Differences in this pathway, both structural and functional differences, have been seen in individuals with ADHD. So. They would obviously have difficulties with knowing what to do in certain situations and then doing it. And then also estimating time and making time predictions. So those are the structural and functional um, uh, differences that we see in the brain that are found in the research. I wanted to talk a little bit about genetics and then I'll talk about uh, parenting in a moment here. So ADHD is a highly genetic disorder. Between 10 to 35% of immediate family members of children with ADHD will likely also have the disorder. The genetic risk to a sibling is about 32%. If a parent has ADHD, it is a 57% chance that their child will have it. When you look at things like adoption studies, Significant genetic contributions are there despite being raised by parents who may or may not have ADHD themselves. So again, this points to that it's not the environment causing the ADHD or the upbringing. Um, there's a highly genetic component to this. When they study twins who are genetically similar, uh, heritability explains the majority of the variation in ADHD symptoms and it is at about 70 to 80 percent heritability estimate and this is the same uh, similar heritability for height which we know is highly inherited.
if you look at molecular, molecular genetics, they've actually found up to 26 genes that may be linked to ADHD. So not only do we have a strong neurological basis, meaning there are actual differences in the brains of individuals with ADHD, we also have strong genetic evidence that it is highly inherited in families. So I want to talk a little bit about the brain areas that we've just discussed and then also when the ADHD is treated. So the research shows us that treatment with stimulant medication was associated with increase in the gray matter volume in areas in the basal ganglia, that motor part of the brain. Long-term treatment with stimulant medication was associated with what they call normalization of caudate activity, which is also a structure inside the basal ganglia. And when they say normalization, it means functioning at what would be expected for most people. There's also a lot of other evidence showing normalization of the fronto frontostriatal pathway, which is the pathway that connects the prefrontal cortex, so the executive functions, some of the structures of the basal ganglia, and the thalamus. And this is after uh, treatment with stimulant medication. There's normalization in this pathway. Um, before we wrap up, I did want to just address, so how is parenting related to ADHD? Now that we can see that there is substantial research evidence for the existence of ADHD as a neurological disorder, we need to discuss how parenting plays a role in the disorder. The idea that, the idea that parenting causes ADHD is not justified by the research. Studies that look at ADHD and parenting actually found that when children were treated for their ADHD symptoms, and particularly they looked at things like disruptive and non-compliant behavior, so when there were significant behavior problems, their mother's use of commands, direction, and criticism actually decreased when they were treated for their ADHD symptoms. This indicates that the mother's parenting behaviors were more of a reaction to the difficult behaviors displayed by their children with untreated ADHD rather than a cause of ADHD itself. Um, additionally, parents may have ADHD themselves and they may actually find parenting a child with ADHD quite difficult when they also have to find ways to manage their own ADHD. And parents' approach to their children can certainly contribute to improvement or worsening of their child's ADHD symptoms, but it cannot be seen as the cause of the ADHD. Now there is research to suggest that parenting is related to risk for oppositional behaviors or even um, oppositional defiant disorder itself, but this is different for ADHD and those two disorders are distinctively different and we will be talking about that in an upcoming podcast here in the month of October. Parents with children who have ADHD are encouraged to parent in a way that helps the child have routine, structure, and predictability in their daily lives. Explicitly stated expectations and consistency in consequences will help to decrease the problem behaviors in these children. In these children. So basically the understanding that parenting will affect 
the severity of the symptoms, but it doesn't cause the symptoms. That there is a brain-based and a genetic-based reason um, and um, explanation for ADHD. Parenting is more a part of how can we make those symptoms better for kids. So check out that 3D brain app that I mentioned if you'd like to look at some of these structures for yourself. Um, you can also check out some of the statistics that I mentioned in today's episode in the Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, a handbook for diagnosis and treatment, fourth edition, um, edited by Russell Barkley. And if you'd like to share some of your stories um, about how you bring awareness to ADHD, please fill out our survey on our homepage at ADHDfamilies.ca or send us an email at ADHDfamilies at canlearnsociety.ca. And we're going to see you next Monday for our next myth. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening to Inside ADHD, the official podcast for ADHDfamilies.ca. For more information about ADHD and how to help your child, visit ADHDfamilies.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific ADHD topic that you'd like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to ADHD families at canlearnsociety.ca